Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, yeah, I'm Jake. If you don't know me, I'm the Minister of Music and Media here at the Hollows Church. And yeah, so I usually do the music stuff. So if uh, something's off about the sermon today, you know why. But I won't sing the, the whole sermon. I'll, I'll, I'll just I'll speak it. But, but I'm here because uh, Mark is off on paternity leave. Uh, they just had their um, fourth baby, right? Four babies, I counted right. <laughs> His name is uh, Ezra Wayne, and he was uh, born on Monday, <clears throat> so they're doing great. They're at home now. Um, Jesse has some pictures, I guess, to show you if you want to see those. <laughs> yeah, uh, but uh, our uh, passage today is in Luke chapter 5, verses um, 27 and through 32. So I'm going to go ahead and read that for us if you want to turn there. That's uh, Mark chapter 5, verses 27 through 32. Um, I'll read it for us, and then I'll pray for us, and we'll, we'll get started in the study of God's Word this morning. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office, and he said to him, follow me. So leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Then Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were guests with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Father God, we thank you for the, the beauty and glory of your word, and that through your word you Reveal your, to us who you are and who you have called us and made us to be. I pray as we um, study your word this morning that we would have just ears to hear what you would say to us and open our hearts to receive what you would give to us, Lord God. And give us uh, just feet and hands to live out what you call us to this morning as we go from this place. Um, we pray that your name be glorified and that we just keep our hearts and minds focused on you this morning. In your name we pray, amen. All right, have you, have you guys ever been asked to do something you were really excited about doing? Maybe something that you didn't quite feel qualified for, but you hope the person doing the asking would overlook a few things and ask you to do it anyways? Well, I faced one of these experiences after my, um, at the end of my sophomore year of college. Now, I grew up in Oregon, and about 30 minutes up the road, there was this Christian summer camp that I went to as a kid. And um, I had about the worst time ever because I, I chose, out of principle, mind you, I chose not to take the swimming test, which meant I was stuck on the shore of the lake all week. But jump forward to college, at the end of my freshman year, I decided to work at that same camp, and I was determined that no students would have as bad a time as I did. And it actually turned out to be a great summer. You know, the kids, um, I could just see the way God was working through their lives, and it was, it was really exciting to be there in, in the midst of those, those other workers and seeing how God was working in their lives. And so I was excited to uh, work there the following summer after my sophomore year. And, but this time I, I applied for the worship leader position. Now, th this... Um, this camp has quite a following in the area. Uh, the uh, churches all across the valley send their students to this camp every year. And they, a lot of times they have a really cool worship guy or gal who's leading the music ministry. Um, 
but at that point when I applied to the position, I only had a few years working in a local congregation, a lead in music, and, and I wasn't necessarily cool, at least not as cool as the guy who did it my first year. But I applied anyways, um, just to see what would happen, and surprise upon surprise, I got the job. Um, I blame it partly on the fact that there was a new camp director. It was his first year, and he didn't really know what he was doing either. But um, I, it was, I got this wonderful opportunity, this amazing, scary opportunity that I felt completely unqualified for. And if you have any experience like this, I'm sure you felt how I felt then. I felt excited, humbled, thankful, and not a little scared. But it turned out to be one of the, the best summers of my life. And seeing the ways that God worked in the hearts and minds of the students during our time of worship really clarified for me that God was calling me to lead his church in worship. Now, in our passage today, it, we, it speaks to a similar calling. It speaks to the call of Christ and the call of the church. We encounter a Jesus who sees us and a sinner who sees others and those who are so blind they can't even see themselves. This passage gives us a picture into the heart of Jesus' ministry, into the heart of the ministry of the church, and the ministry that we've all been called into. But it also gives us a picture of those who are excluded from this kingdom work, excluded because they don't see their need for it. And as we dive into this passage together, my hope is that um, you would be reminded of the God who calls us, of the ministry we are called to, and of those habits and postures that exclude us from this work that he's doing within us and all around us. We see here an amazing tr a truth, a truth perhaps that we sometimes, often maybe, that we, that we know but we fail to really know, that Jesus came not to call the self-righteous but sinners to repentance. Je Jesus came to call not the self-righteous but sinners to repentance. So as we look at this passage, it begins with the call of Christ. We see this in verse 27 and 28. Verse 27 says, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. After this, after what? Well, if you remember from our passage last week, um, Jesus uh, forgave a broken man's sin and healed him of his paralysis. Now, people were really excited about this wonderful miracle that Jesus, um, that Jesus did, but there were some among the Pharisees who weren't very happy that Jesus was going around forgiving people's sins. Uh, they, they rightly understood that only God can forgive sins. What they wrongly assumed, however, what the, was that this man Jesus was only a man. So you, you can imagine Jesus, after doing this miraculous healing, waltzing down the Galilean roads, followed by his disciples and in a crowd of onlookers and wonder seekers as Jesus encounters another sinner, Levi the tax collector. Now, this isn't our first time encountering tax collectors in the Gospel of Luke. We actually saw them first in um, the baptism of John the Baptist when a group of tax collectors went to John for his baptism of repentance. Now, we can't be certain whether Levi was one of these uh, tax collectors, but what we do know is that him and his kind were outcasts in society. They were considered scoundrels or, or traitors by most, just about everybody, which it being tax season right now may not be so hard to relate with. Um, but I did some study on first century tax collectors, and I can hardly understand the tax system we have in the U.S., so I'll spare you the details. I mean, you can ask my wife. Uh, we were doing taxes yesterday, and it was, it was a mess. But 
But basically, with Israel being under the, the thumb of the Roman Empire, um, Rome established tax leasing offices throughout the different provinces that they controlled um, to collect the taxes from the, the people. And local residents could be hired to collect the actual taxes. Now, these well-to-do Jews um, paid Rome for the opportunity to collect individual fees for the use of roads, um, for the use of um, docking in harbors, for exporting and importing goods, and also collecting taxes on houses and businesses and so on and so on. They charged more than the tax required by Rome so that they could collect what was owed to Rome and have some left over for themselves. As you can imagine, this was a business that was prone to abuse. There was no limit as to how much a tax collector could charge, so many would raise fees just so they could pocket more money for themselves. And by simply working for the oppressive Roman regime, they became instruments of oppression themselves. Many act like loan sharks or extortioners. Think mob boss. Or maybe that crooked sheriff of Nottingham from the Disney adaptation of Robin Hood. You know the one I'm talking about, the ugly mean wolf who went around stealing the last copper coins of the poor townsfolk. These were people who were exploiting off the, the suffering of others. They were treating their fellow countrymen like commodities. Uh, the Talmud, a later rabbinic writing on the teachings of the Old Testament, placed tax collectors in the same category as robbers. And the, the Pharisees considered them ritually unclean, meaning if you even touched a tax collector, you would become unclean yourself. Sound familiar? A few weeks ago, we saw that this was how the people of Israel treated people with skin diseases. Those with skin diseases were outcasts too. But do you remember what Jesus did for the leper? He touched him. He healed him. And now we see Jesus doing something very similar for another outcast, an outcast named Levi. So in verse 27, it says that Jesus saw Levi. And the Greek word that is used here for saw means to look with fixed eyes. This wasn't just a passing glance. The, this Greek verb regularly signifies intensive, thorough, lingering, astonished, reflective, comprehending observation. Jesus saw Levi, a scene that went beyond outward appearance, past the tax office and all that it implied to the very heart and soul of the man. And Jesus does this same scene in our lives. Ask yourself this question. What does Jesus see when he looks at you? You know, the answer is the same for all of us. He sees it all, not just the people that we present ourselves as being. He sees past the job titles and past the family roles, past the mean names we gathered growing up, the self-condemnation, the false praise. Jesus sees us as we are, broken and sinful, yet made to reflect the very image of God. He sees it all, and he loves us still. Look at what Jesus does after seeing Levi. It's the same thing he has done for each one of us who claim the name Christian. He calls out Levi saying, follow me. Now I can bet Levi was amazed by this turn of events, surprised beyond comprehension. He had no delusions about who he was. I'm not sure how or in what ways he had contact with Jesus prior to this moment, but I'm sure he knew who Jesus was. He was a rabbi, he was a teacher of God's law. And if he was anything like the Pharisees, he would have nothing to do with Levi. But no, Jesus calls him to join his disciples, to be part of the new community that he is creating. So, and he has done the same thing for you and me. Jesus sees us despite our sin, and he marks us out to be a part of his family. 
The call of Christ has an amazing effect on Levi's life, as we see in verse 28. It says, so leaving everything behind, he got up and began to follow him. Now, this call changed everything for Levi. It required him to leave behind his old life and enter into a new life of following Jesus wherever he would go. This is portrayed in the strong language that Luke uses when he says that Levi left everything behind. And it reminds me of the words of the Apostle Paul as he speaks of our own conversion in Ephesians. He says, but that is not how you came to know Christ, assuming you heard about him and were taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, to take off your former way of life, the old self that is corrupted by deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, the one created according to God's likeness in righteousness and purity of the truth. Now, this is how it looks for each one of us. Uh, Christ calls us. He calls us out of our old life and into the new life of uh, the new way of the kingdom. Now, we see this kingdom life at work in, in Levi's life in the next verses. But here in verse 28 is the transition. It's, it's a break from the old and a turning to the new. Now, this transition, this call of Christ cost Levi something. He was most likely fairly wealthy, just like most of the tax collectors of his time. Now, unlike the apostles Peter and John who were called out of the fishing business, Levi was breaking ties with a lucrative way of life. But in following Jesus, he was rejecting this security. He was rejecting wealth. He was leaving behind the means that he used to support his family and, and himself. And in so doing, he leaves us with an example to follow. It, it begs a question, it raises a question for all of us. What does it cost us to follow Jesus? What does following Jesus cost you? Living in a world that rejects Christ and his kingdom, following the true king will cost us all something. Now, he doesn't cost each one of you out of your current job or into full-time ministry. Uh, we, we actually see that in, in, in the next verses that Jesus didn't tell Levi to break ties with his, his old friends or family. But following Jesus does and should cost us all something. You know, perhaps for you it means not advancing as far up in your company because you're leaving behind the business practices that treat others like commodities. Or maybe it means that you don't make as much money because you're setting aside time for family and for church. You know, for me, it, it, it meant leaving behind security and entering and embracing the ups and downs of ministry life. Now, what does following Christ cost you? At the very least, it means leaving behind our freedom to do whatever we would like to do and instead choosing service to God and others. It means making a weekly worship a, a habit instead of sleeping in or taking that second family vacation or soaking up the sun while we have the chance. You know, it looks like finding our place in the story God is telling. In the kingdom Christ is building all around us, just like Levi did. You know, it will cost us something, but just like Levi, we gain so much more. When I said that following Christ means for me, at least as I grew up in my faith, leaving behind security, I meant it. You know, I would much prefer a nice, predictable job, you know, in a place I'm familiar and comfortable with, but that's not what Christ had for me. Instead, he took me on a ministry journey full of ups and downs. A journey that has not always been easy and certainly not stable. You know, the, my first ministry job I took at a seminary took me all the way to Indiana, where I worked at a church and I, I lost that job because the church ran out of funds. So I had to move back home and, 
and I was looking for what God had for me next, and so I moved all the way out to North Carolina. And after working there for a little over a year, I had to move again out here. So uh, through all these moves and all these up and downs, I didn't do my best trusting in God and resting in his kindness, but God was continually showing me his faithfulness and his, that his presence was with me through all of that. And it's the same for you. Following Christ costs us all something, but in the midst of all our troubles, we have a faithful friend, a good father, an advocate and helper. For those of you who follow Jesus, he gives you this promise that he will never leave you nor forsake you. He has brought you into the family of God. He sees you, all of you, and he loves you still. This is the kind of love that makes it all worth it, the kind of love that changes everything. You know, Levi didn't regret leaving, back, leaving behind his old life. He left it with excitement, with exuberance. He knew he was getting a gift that he didn't deserve, and so he didn't look back. He went forward with everything that he had. You know, the call of Christ. Jesus marks us out despite our sin and to calls us into a whole new way of life. Now, this whole new way of life is what we see at work in Levi's life in the next verses as he lives out the call of the church. So let's take a look at those verses. Verses 29 and, and um, 30. It says, Levi hosted a grand banquet for him at his house. Now, there was a large crowd of tax collectors and others who were reclining at the table with them. But the Pharisees and their scribes were complaining to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? We see here an amazing reversal as Levi is invited to be an active participant in the mission of Jesus. Christ called Levi and now Levi calls his friends and family to encounter the Jesus who changed everything in his life. Levi was seen by Jesus and now he sees others in need. Now, this is the normal transition for all followers of Jesus. Christ calls us, and then we call others. This is the call of the church. It's joining Jesus in his mission to sinners and sufferers like you and me to discover the difference that Jesus makes in all of life. Now, the character of the call of the church, of this ministry that Jesus calls us into, is pictured in our passage in the changing of the tables. As Levi moves from a table that is marked by taking to one that is marked by giving. You know, the tax office was a place where power and manipulation and control were exercised. It was a table that treated others like instruments or commodities instead of image bearers. It's a table that it permeates with an attitude that asks how you might love and serve them, not how they might love and serve you. But Levi exchanges this table for one that serves the kingdom of God. Now, one of our core values here at the Hollows is, is the table, and for good reason, because we see Jesus throughout the Gospels using table fellowship as a means to do extraordinary work in people's lives. He leveraged ordinary moments like eating and drinking and table talk to do a, extraordinary work in the lives of the people around him. So we value turning our own tables into places of grace and, and mission and community just like Jesus does at Levi's banquet. Now, this kingdom table is one of grace. Just as Jesus called Levi to be his disciple despite his sin, now Levi calls his sinful tax collector friends to come meet the rabbi of grace. Levi shows us that grace begets grace as a place of belonging is opened up for anyone and everyone who might come. The minister, Robert Mungner, once said, 
The church is the only fellowship in the world where the one requirement for membership is the unworthiness of the candidate. And we see this made blatantly clear here at the kingdom table. Church, don't think your past mistakes disqualify you from joining Jesus in his mission. If Levi can do this work, so can you. Now, just as the table is a place of grace, it's also one of community, a place where people from all walks of life come under the banner of the king. We see in verse 29 that Levi and his tax collector friends joined Jesus and his disciples in this meal. And some of these disciples used to be fishermen, the same fishermen who were exploited by the taxes of Rome. But at the table of the kingdom, these once enemies have become friends. Now, Jesus calls Levi not to reject his old relationships now that he has become a disciple of Jesus. Instead, Levi connects the social dots in his life, opening up an opportunity for strangers to become friends, for enemies to become family. Now, the call of the church is the same today. Jesus didn't, doesn't save us out of the world. He saves us to engage the world differently. We should work to connect the social dots in our lives, not being afraid to invite our non-Christian friends to social outings with Christian friends and family. We, you might even be surprised where an invitation to Sunday worship takes you. When we micromanage our relationships and social situations, we miss opportunities to share the good news of Jesus in the ordinary table talk moments of everyday life. You know, the kingdom's table's communal nature goes hand in hand with his missional bent. Before Levi was working for the advancement of the kingdom of Rome, spreading its oppressive rule day after day. But now he's working for the advancement of the kingdom of God, which is the task of all followers of Jesus, of you and me. Even if we do a great job of connecting the social dots in our lives, we still need to take that extra step to talk to the unbelievers around us about Jesus. This is table talk with a purpose. Jesus didn't squelch spiritual topics or things that might, he didn't refrain from talking about things that might offend others. We actually see this in Luke 7 where we get insight into another um, table moment where Jesus speaks to his host about a parable that puts his host in the wrong. You know, Jesus took, took opportunities to challenge those around him. And we actually send the wrong message when we simply focus on being nice in, to the non-Christians around us. The call of the church is not to be nice, it's to speak the truth with love. And I've been convicted about this recently. My, my wife and I have uh, a neighbor who we befriended, and we've talked to him a little bit about faith, matters of faith. But uh, by and large, our table talk moments have been mostly about things of no lasting value. Now, don't get me wrong, I know you run the risk when you bring up Jesus to people who are turned off by the church or anything to do with matters of faith, but if we really do love the broken and hurting in our city, in our neighborhoods, we're going to look for opportunities to speak to them about Jesus, who alone brings wholeness and healing. But even if we approach the subject in the most loving and humble way we can think of, we still may face rejection or opposition. And part of what it means to carry out the call of the church is to face the same misunderstanding Jesus did. You see this misunderstanding in verse 30, when the Pharisees complained to Jesus' disciples about the guest list of Jesus' party. Now, we first encountered the Pharisees in our last passage uh, from last week. <clears throat> they, when they were questioning Jesus about his bestowal of forgiveness on the paralyzed man. 
Now they question Jesus about the company that he keeps. Now, just as a reminder, the Pharisees were members of a Jewish party that exercised strict piety according to the Mosaic law. They were a movement concerned with the sanctification of every aspect of one's life. To this end, they added their own laws as a fence around the written Torah, around the Mosaic law, to keep people from breaking God's law. They were not numerous, but they were very influential, and they were the unofficial religious leaders of Jesus' time. And as I said before, the Pharisees considered tax collectors to be ritually unclean, both because of their sinfulness, but also because of their contact with Gentiles, those who are outside the people of Israel. So they are obviously astounded when they see Jesus and his disciples eating with tax collectors. To eat with someone in Jesus' time was a sign of friendship, of full acceptance. So the Pharisees can't comprehend why Jesus, a proclaimed religious teacher, is eating with tax collectors. But their misunderstanding shows just how blind they were, just how self-righteous they were. Well, let's take a moment to kind of define our terms here. Righteous, um, the word Jesus uses in verse 32, it in all its different forms has a long history throughout the story of the Bible. It certainly does carry a legal and judicial meaning, but the Bible, it's also a relational word. Uh, it's one who is righteous, acts in accordance with the requirements of law and custom towards others in God. And righteousness has to do with the right conduct of God and humans within concrete, real-life relationships. Righteousness is, a, is about acting the way God has created us and made us to act. And, and there are two sides to this rightness. On the one hand, God is the one who sets the standards and initiates the relationship, that covenant relationship. Uh, and he is both judge and redeemer of his own, which creates tension throughout the story of the Bible. On the other hand, God demands the right acts and conducts of life from those who are in relationship with him. Now, this is just a basic understanding of the word, word righteous and righteousness, but what then about self-righteousness and self-righteous? What, what do you think of when you hear the word self-righteous? I know for me, I immediately think of someone with high moral standards that they use to judge others, standards that they believe will make them right with God. And this is exactly what we see in the Pharisees. The standards that, <clears throat> that they created, that they followed, were ones set not by God, but by themselves. It's a righteousness devoid of relationship, one which actually erodes relationships. It's a righteousness that moves one away from trust in God and his covenant to trust in self, which, which fosters and leads to all sorts of ugliness of heart and action. Self-righteousness is present whenever there is an attitude of entitlement over gratitude, a heart that weighs its own merits and thinks it has earned a blessing or thanks or approval. It's a posture of pride instead of humility, a habit of seeking a reward instead of receiving a gift. It's a self-made righteousness. Just compare the, the Pharisees with Levi. Levi knew he didn't deserve to be a part of the new and exciting thing that Jesus was doing. But when Jesus calls him, he acts immediately and throws a party for his friends. It's kind of like when I received that, that job that I, I didn't think I was qualified for. When I got the job, I received it as a gift. And I, I was excited about it. And I, I went into that summer just thankful to God and excited for the things that he would do. And which was part of the reason that, that it became one of the best summers of my life. But then you have the Pharisees. The Pharisees who, who act 
totally opposite to Levi. And why did they do that? Well, because they knew they were righteous on their own. They didn't need Jesus or his, or his ministry. They had their lives together, and they earned it all by their own merits. So they respond to the welcome of the broken and sinners with complaints and grumbling. Personally, I know I've done my fair amount of complaining in my life. Even though God has provided me for me time and time again through all of those ups and downs um, in my life, I still find myself complaining whenever something doesn't go my way. It's like I finally run into something that God can't handle. And that is a seed of self-righteousness. I don't think here at the Hollows we struggle with self-righteousness in, tr in the traditional sense. We believe the right things. We, we know we're saved by grace. We, we welcome those who are different from us to come and be a part of our faith family. But the seeds of self-righteousness can so easily slip into our, 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 our lives. The attitudes and postures and habits that foster self-righteousness can, can spring up in the most unlikely places. Just think about how easy it is to complain or how easy it is to depend on ourselves. Self-righteousness is the same thing as self-reliance in many ways. You know, the reason we live in such a divided culture is because many of us act like different sects of Pharisees, believing we are right and everyone else is wrong. You know, the algorithms of social media are built around this concept. They are designed to maximize time spent on the product so they promote what wins the most attention, which is often posts that, as one New York Times article puts it, tap into negative primal emotions like anger or fear, leading to identity politics and increased tribalism, and at times, real-life violence. These are seeds of self-righteousness. And they can be found, as I said, in the most unlikely of places, and they can grow up in our lives without us even realizing it. Self-righteousness has nothing to do with the call of the church. Its postures and attitudes can actually blind us to the ways God is working within us and all around us. Similar to the ways that the Pharisees were blinded to seeing God at work in his son Jesus. The Pharisees were so blind that, they eventually, that many of them eventually tried to kill Jesus. Now, while blindness in our own lives won't lead us to such dark places by God's grace, it can lead to a place of coldness or aloofness to the work of Jesus. It can leave us feeling entitled instead of thankful for all that he has done. Have you forgotten who you were before Jesus? Do you ever think about what your life might be like without him? Can you share a table with those who are different from you? Do you allow things to divide you, whether it mask or no vax, vaccine, no vaccine, poor, rich, whatever it may be? Do you see yourself as in need or do you have all that you need? The atheist philosopher Nietzsche also misunderstood the call of the church. He criticized Christianity as a religion for the weak. And he was right. As the former pastor Timothy Keller puts it, if you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. But that kind of spiritual humility is hard to muster. We come to God saying, look at all I've done, or maybe look at all I've suffered. God, however, wants us to look to him. All you need is need. All you need is nothing. Levi knew he had nothing, but the Pharisees were blind to their need. Not everyone sees their need to come to the table of the king or to respond to the call of Christ and the call of the church. This is why Jesus came not, not to call the self-righteous but sinners to repentance. 
We see this clearly as Jesus brings our passage to a close in his response to the complaints of the Pharisees. He says in verses 31 and 32, Jesus replied to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a doctor, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. I think Jesus uses a bit of sarcasm here because in reality, the Pharisees were just as sick and in need as Levi and his tax collector friends. Now, the Pharisees may have looked better on the outside, but inside they, they were slaves to a self-reliance that turned their trust away from God and onto themselves. Jesus speaks pointedly about their sin in Matthew 23, 27, and 28. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! You are like whitewashed tombs, which appear beautiful on the outside, but inside are full of the bones of the dead and every kind of impurity. In the same way, on the outside you seem righteous to people, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. While righteousness creates and fosters relationship, sin is a destroyer of relationship. Sin has destroyed our relationship with with one another, with the earth that we live on, with the very God who made us. And no amount of good deeds or nice thoughts can save us from, the, from, the, the, from sin and the separation from God that sin brings. If that wasn't true, then grace wouldn't be grace, and no, not even the best of us would have a chance at salvation. But Christ has opened up the way, opened up the table for all people. Both Pharisees and tax collectors are in need of him, but Jesus came not to call the self-righteous but sinners to repentance, not because sinners are somehow better or the self-righteous are somehow worse, but simply because those who know they are sick are the only ones who come for healing. Just think about it. You, you don't go to a doctor when you're healthy. You go when you're sick. The, the most dangerous diseases are those that don't reveal themselves until it's too late. And Self-righteousness is dangerous in the same kind of way. It doesn't reveal itself until it's too late. You know, the biggest difference between Levi and the Pharisees was not their need. It was, it was honesty. It was Levi's ability to see his need for Jesus. Jesus came not to call the self-righteous but sinners to repentance. And what is repentance? It's a, it's a turning around. It's a transition from the old life to the new. It's what we see in Levi. And only those who see the depravity of their old life are looking for something new. So how do we fight against those self-righteous attitudes and postures in our own lives that can easily take root and, and, and bear fruit that is destructive even to the call of the church? Well, we see the answer in Levi. It begins with the call of Christ. Repentance itself, this seeing our need for Jesus, is a gift. It's not something earned but received. Paul says to Timothy about God's servants speaking to their opponents, he says, perhaps God will grant them repentance, leading them to the knowledge of the truth. You see there, it is God who grants repentance. It's God who opens the eyes of the blind. Has he opened your eyes? Do you see your need for Jesus? Do you see yourself as sick and in need or as whole and healthy? Well, perhaps you do know and love Jesus, but have you become apathetic about the great work he has done in your life? Have you been more prone to complaining than rejoicing, to grumbling than blessing? Can you see the ways God is working within you and all around you? Are you so distracted by your own self-reliance or by judging others that you fail to see what he is doing in the world? And 
we all need a wake-up call sometimes. And I, I really appreciate how Timothy Keller puts it. He says, you are more sinful than you know, yet more loved than you could possibly imagine. And what a privilege it is to be a part of God's kingdom, even though we don't deserve it. What the Apostle Paul says about the church in Corinth is so true of us. He says, brothers and sisters, consider your calling. Not many were wise from a human perspective, not many powerful, not many of noble birth. Instead, God has chosen what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God has chosen what is insignificant and despised in the world, what is viewed as nothing, to bring to nothing what is viewed as something, so that no one may boast in his presence. It is from him that you are in Christ Jesus, who became wisdom from God for us, our righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in order that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. Church, let us be those who boast in the Lord. Jesus has opened up the table for us to join him at the, the kingdom table, not because he ignores our sinfulness, but because he has taken our sin upon himself and has given us his righteousness. He is the answer to meeting God's standard of righteousness. His call of grace leads us and guides us by the power of the Spirit to take up the call of the church. He makes room for sinners at the table because he takes their sin upon himself. He is the answer to the tension of God as judge and redeemer because in Jesus' life and work, a, there is a beautiful exchange. Jesus lived the perfect life of righteousness that he gives to us, and he takes our sin and the punishment that it deserves, the judgment that it deserves upon himself on the cross. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And what a miracle, what grace this is. Church, if you're here and you're a believer, fighting those self-righteous tendencies in your life is as simple as this. It's remembering the grace God has given you. It's simple, but it's not easy. We have to give ourselves over to the habits of remembrance in our lives. Weekly corporate worship, daily prayer. If you're here and you're not a believer, I, I, I ask, I plead for you to hear the call of Jesus. He says, come, come follow me into a whole new way of life. An abundant life of grace upon grace. Jesus came not to call the self-righteous but sinners to repentance. He came to call you. So as we turn now to the table of the king, let's take a moment to reflect on the sacrifice of Christ for us, on the new life that we have in him. We take communion each week because it's a practice of remembrance. As the, the bread represents his body given for us, the juice, his blood shed for us. He invites us to the kingdom table of grace, to, to this table of grace, to remember his sacrifice and to celebrate his victory over sin and death as we await for the day that he will come back to set all things right. So I invite all those who are followers of Jesus to take of the bread and of the juice at your own pace as we sing this next song, just remembering that this is a table of community, of grace, of mission. May we go from this place all the more ready to take up the call of Christ, to take up the call of the church and to rest in the amazing grace of God.